and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I have the pleasure of nerding out with Misa Winters and Tara Wilson about laboratory analysis for SCAT after field collection. So we're talking genetics today. Um, Tara... It formerly worked as a research scientist in a wildlife conservation biology laboratory at the University of Washington. Being academically trained for field research and career experience in the lab, she has a unique take on both sides. In recent years, Tara has moved towards the field of data analysis and computer science. Tara currently re resides near Seattle with her husband and two dogs, Maisie and Tiny Bill. Um, welcome to the podcast, Tara. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And then Misa, Misa Winters, is currently the Molecular Lab Manager and Senior Scientist at Conservation X Labs. She has over nine years of wildlife genetics experience, mainly focused on species identification and population origin from difficult sample types such as bone, teeth, ivory, hair, and scat. Her previous work includes ecosystem analysis and predator-prey relationships in mammals and birds, the tracking of poached African elephant ivory, and med many other inquiries on species identification from forensic and ancient samples. She is currently contributing to the development of NABIT, which is a handheld battery-operated diagnostic tool meant to democratize species identification to anyone, anywhere, and is responsible for translating the traditional lab process into field-ready products. So welcome to the podcast, Misa. I hope everyone can hear why I am so excited to talk to you both. <laughs> yes, thank you. We're, we're really excited. We love talking about <laughs> genetics and wildlife and poop, especially. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I feel like the three of us could probably just have a whole separate spin-off podcast where we just talk about all of this for an hour every week. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know about you, but I don't think I have time for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So um, you, ha you, one of you, it has a science highlight for us. Um, so I'm going to let you take it away with our weekly science highlight before we get into the interview. Go ahead, Misa. Okay. Yes. So I'm sharing, it's not a very recent paper, um, but it's something that's always stuck with me. And it's by Yang et al. published in 2014. And it's called The Duration of Urination Does Not Change with Body Size. And it was published in PNAS. And I love this paper. It's not really about genetics, which is obviously my forte. It's actually about like the physics behind the bladder and the urethra and how, um, when you look across different body sizes, so like from like mice, rats, all the way to elephants, there is amazingly a very similar bladder emptying time that does not change with system size. And since we love talking about poop, this is about urine. Um, it's just basically about physics and it's really <laughs> mathematical. Awesome. But they have these amazing pictures yeah. in the in, in there that like show a, a, a bat like peeing and while it's flying. And I think it's a great paper. I highly recommend it. So, yeah, we'll definitely link to it in the show notes. Go ahead, Tara. So the takeaway is an elephant pees relatively the same amount as a mouse would pee. Right. So well, it's, it's like, but it's obviously more volume, but the same, same amount okay. of time. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. So wow, it's like, a, like, like an elephant equation. might pee like. <sighs> So an elephant might pee like three gallons, but because when they pee, it's like a fire hose, <laughs> it takes as long yep. as when like a mouse pees its little like, you yes. know, one male. And it's or like fascinating yeah. because there's no real like evolutionary reason for that, right? Like is there's no like fitness for like time to pee necessarily. There's no like optimal <laughs> duration of urination, except maybe there is. 
I yeah, just don't know it's, why. It's, it's just maybe it's weird. Weird. Yeah, maybe it's like group uh, <clears throat> survival dynamics where I'm in a pack. Or if we're social mammals, at, at least yeah. we can do that. If we're together and it's like, oh, now we all have to go use the bathroom. We, you don't want to be standing around waiting for Willie over here to just take him forever to pee. And then he's the one who gets left out and gets picked off by some predator. I don't know. We should talk to the women at concert venues about this paper because I have some questions. Uh, that's such a good oh, point. Oh, that was the Lisa, first thing that like, happened to me. I was like, how long does it take me to pee? <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's really about gravity and like the dynamics of like lateral flow and like how the urethra basically works as like a limiter. And the wow. size of the urethra is really how you have that ability to um, dispense a very, very different amount of volume. It's, it's something like 3,000 times difference. So like difference between an elephant and a mouse is like 3,000 times. Yeah. Um, so it's just crazy. I love it. That's, That's so, so wild. Cool. And, and like, I, I'm so curious. I would love to talk to these scientists. Like, what was what was the hypothesis? What was the reason? Why, why did this question matter? Um, or was this just like you had a bunch of data on duration of urination for something else and you were just like, huh, this is weird and then made it a paper. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know we need, we need to include like, why did we do this research in all of our papers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what made us curious? I feel like, I feel like in undergrad, I had to like write that as justification and half the time it was very frustrating because I was like, I don't know. I'm in undergrad. This is like a three hour experiment. And I just thought it was interesting and I want to get an A. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Oh, that's so let's get into the interview. <laughs> first things first, conservation dogs, a lot of the time we're finding poop. What can we learn from our scat samples thanks to the work that the two of you do or, you know, the many heroic scientists around the world like the two of you do? I love this question because we always talk about how like poop is brown gold, right? There's a, a very, very large array of things that you can do with poop. So, you know, obviously there's genetic analysis and genetic analysis means many things. It's like, what's the species? What's the individual? What did it eat? We can determine its sex. There's also the morphological diet analysis, like just the physical properties of like, are there, is there fur, bones, teeth, insects, you know, whatever in the poop, you can look at the microbiome and that has connotations for understanding like bacterial and immune system interactions. You can look for parasites. You can do pathogen analysis for bacteria and viruses, um, hormone analysis, which Tara will talk about. You can determine age of the uh, individual if you use isotopes. Um, but yeah, go ahead and talk about hormones real quick, Tara. Yeah, just even <clears throat> you think about um, hormones. I think uh, we're all very familiar with stress hormones. Mm -hmm. And hormones <laughs> are like our biological... Uh, um, I'm wow. Well, I'm losing the word. Like, like a Analytes? male system. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. And it like communicates with the rest of our body, you know, because things are uh -huh. release, released in our pituitary glands, or I don't even know what that's right. But it like goes to wherever it needs to go and make things happen. So what's so cool about poop and hormones is that if you can imagine trapping an animal then somehow sedating it so you can take a blood sample from it. Do you think that animal's going to be super chill vibes? Right. No. They're going to be freaked the fuck out. So yeah. that's what's so cool about 
using poop and getting hormones is you're getting their baseline what their natural yeah. behavior and who is isn't in relaxed the when they're pooping yeah <laughs> right <laughs> it's my favorite pastime activity honestly yeah i actually so shortly before i got into the field or maybe around the same time i got into the field of conservation detection dogs i was on a huge robert sapolsky kick and i can't remember which of his books it is i think it might be a primate's memoir but he's talking about he was doing um research on the stress levels of baboons based on where they were in kind of the social hierarchy um and he's telling these ridiculous stories of trying to stalk these baboons and blow dart them so that he can measure their stress levels with and like blow darting them without them having them notice yeah and without having like he talked a lot about like it was a big problem where the lower ranking individuals when they got darted and started getting sleepy would then get picked on by the higher ranking individuals <laughs> and like so obviously you know and just like his data it sounds like i mean he clearly got it but half of this book is just these ridiculous stories of this scientist trying so hard to measure stress levels when he's having to dart these animals which is inherently stressful yeah yeah that's awesome that's what yeah. makes poop such a uh like a covert window into an animal that's what's so yeah. cool about it well and yeah. since we started talking about urination you know i think i would imagine in most cases it's a lot harder to collect urine than it is to collect scat like urine may have some of the yes. same info but in the wild i'm not like coming across puddles of urine that i can just scoop up versus you know right. is in a nice yeah. little reservoir it's, it's very convenient having it in like a solid structure uh-huh. <laughs> yeah really nice of nature yeah to have and then the other thing and then, like i just want to expand too because like we talk about stress hormones uh-huh. but like we can also obviously determine pregnancy um and there's mm-hmm. different types of stress hormones that point towards like nutritional deficiency versus like kind of like emotional cognitive stress um and same oh. thing you can also kind of look at Whoa. age to some degree with hormones as well like uh-huh. as a mature adults or juveniles mm-hmm. 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 wow that's wow yeah that's great <laughs> um Okay. So, you know, so yeah, you can, you can on, turn on the, all these the things topic. without ever seeing the animal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then t- kind of on, on our end of things on, uh, you know, whether it's a conservation dog handler or someone else who's doing scat analysis, how does like our sample collection on the front end make your job easier or harder? Um, you know, how does that come into play? You know, cause it's not like I'm just wandering around with like a doggy wag bag and picking up the entire sample and then bringing it to you guys usually mm-hmm. <laughs> well it's here to yeah. this one <clears throat> there's quite a few um and of course the first thing that we think about is if it's possible to get the freshest poop available that's the you know one of the first things we want because we want we don't want poop from a year ago or two years ago. You know, we, we want the most snapshot information that we can get. Um, but even small things like you want to talk about the quality of a Ziploc bag. Mason, I can go on forever about good Ziploc bags and real shitty Ziploc bags. Um, yeah, you really want a good Ziploc bag. You need it, it to be sturdy enough to be frozen and unfrozen, have liquid in it, have solid, maybe pokey things in it so it doesn't poke through and contaminate other things. So just simple mechanics like that. Like, please have a good Ziploc bag, um, good quality one. 
and make sure everything is labeled really nicely. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, again, that's just kind of common field work. I think anyone can attest to those things. Um, and I think the, the fun part that we can start talking about is you think about collecting poop from a medium or a small sized animal, mm -hmm. you just have like a couple of logs and that would fit in mm -hmm. a, like a, if we're all thinking about a lunch, uh, Ziploc bag. Yeah. You could fit. Sure. Yeah. Like a sandwich bag. There. Yeah. <clears throat> but let's say you're studying bears or even elephants and, and Misa is familiar mm -hmm. with the elephant part. Well, that's a huge mound of poop. How are you going to take, like, <laughs> you can't even carry that around in your backpack all day, let alone like take it, transport it to a lab. So, yeah. um, I know the lab that Misa and I used to work in have considered this and did tests on the best way to collect poop. Like if you as right. a handler out in the field, you know, you cannot take the whole sample if it's large, you know? So where yeah. do you sacrifice to ensure the homogenous representation of the sample? Um, so we've done, um, you know, a lot of research into that and testing and experiments to figure out the best way. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's another really interesting part. I was really surprised to learn, so I was chatting with Dr. Karen DiMatteo um, about, I, I think I sent you both this paper, I've, I've been calling it the glitter poop paper, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. that um, yeah. is about how non-target species behavior can affect the perceived accuracy of the dogs. Um, and I was really surprised when we were talking, she was saying that if, for example, uh, a coyote urinated on mountain lion scat, it doesn't matter where you take the sample, it will uh, like where you you, you gra grab the poop from it'll still have enough coyote urine in it to really throw things mm -hmm. off and i had really hoped <laughs> that we could just you know dig into the center of the pile of scat or something <laughs> to like yeah. mitigate urine marking effects and really bummed yes. to find out that that doesn't seem to be the case <laughs> is urine an inhibitor when we do dna work i can't do you know yeah, I mean, urine can be an inhibitor, like, you know, urea itself is not great, but, you know, that's why we do, it, you know, when we do the extraction process of the nucleic acids, there's a process that helps remove those impurities. I mean, poop in general is also okay. a big inhibitor. And when we say inhibitor, we mean that it's, um, if you were to just like take a poop and stick it into a chemistry to try and amplify your DNA, it definitely would not work. Um, you would you, we have a process ah, okay. in between. Um, but what you just said, yeah, Kayla, sense, I guess. Yeah. really resonates with me because when I was working in my ancient DNA lab, like back getting my master's, um, we worked with a lot uh, of Native American coprolites. So coprolites are, you know, like basically fossilized human poops. Um, and so when you look at Native mm -hmm. American culture, a lot of times they, they make these things called middens. So they're just like, you know, holes in the ground and they throw all their trash in there. So like everything they ate and they defecate there and pee there and, um, you know, just kind of trash in general. So anthropologists are always really excited when they find these because then it's like, oh, there's all this cool stuff and you get to learn about what they did and their culture. But because there's like layers, that exact same thing, that like urination of like, you know, like... Uh, is going to penetrate from higher layers into lower oh, layers and then right, it kind of right it like percolates down analysis. yes so we used to deal uh -huh. with that a little bit and uh just like you was, we were saying like in order to because you have, like it's, a, it's more of a hard substance coprolites we would have to dig into mm -hmm. the center of them to try to mitigate <laughs> yeah. contamination but when it's fresh and it's wet yeah there's really nothing you can do as soon as that yeah 
hearing comes in. What what is kind of the easiest level of DNA to work with? Is it saliva? Is the, uh, like what if if you had a captive animal and you wanted to do genetic analysis, is blood preferable? Uh, saliva? What? Because clearly scat and urine are not oh, ideal. That's a great question. Um, I mean, like blood, blood is also really inhibitory. It's the same thing. You have to go through a chemical processing to get rid of all of those blood mm-hmm. cells because there's no like DNA in the blood cells. Um, there's a lot of heme in there that interferes. Um, so like, you know, yeah, a saliva swab is not bad. Saliva itself can be very inhibitive. Depends on what they ate. It depends on what they yeah. drank, you know, like, um, like if you, if you do like the ancestry.com or 23andme mm-hmm. or whatever they'll right. tell you like don't drink coffee so yeah. there's all these little mm-hmm. things it doesn't mean we can't get the data it just you know means it could be a little more degraded or not as good quality um so yeah, yeah. i think okay. uh, a mouse swab is probably the easiest and then blood just because it's a little harder you know you have to actually stab the animal but blood is still like a really great source it's a good quality yeah. usually Gotcha. Well, and I was kind of wondering, like, I was thinking 23andMe or, like, when I did genetic tests for my dogs, like, do they ask for saliva just because that's the easiest thing for me to get or because it's the best thing for them? I don't really care because I don't really want to do a blood draw on my dog. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's because yeah. of the convenience to the user. Yeah, that's what Definitely. I kind of imagined. Um, yeah, cool. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to add as far as like sample collection and what matters? I mean, do you have a short plastic bag rant that we need to go on? (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually I feel like, okay. So what I want to say in a continuation to just the sample collection part is Mm -hmm. that, you know, we talked about, yes, like have a good bag, have it well labeled. And then there's also going to be a bunch of metadata, right. Associated with this, generally speaking. And we'll probably talk about this more in like, um, in more detail, but, you know, there has to be some way to record that information, whether you're writing it on the bag, which seems maybe not the best with the dog in tow, um, or it's, you know, on an app or a spreadsheet or something like there's something that helps mm-hmm. you understand, you know, you know, where are you located? What's the vegetation surrounding? There's a lot of notable observations that are sometimes really helpful for us in the lab. Things mm-hmm. like, are you near a latrine? Are there animal indications nearby? Um, you know, cause sometimes, like, like you said, your example of like a coyote peeing on a cougar, um, if there's other evidence nearby, like a, a kill, like um, like uh, debris from a kill that you might be like, okay, well, clearly a mm-hmm. cougar was here. So then if you get that like mixture, then it kind of helps you understand, well, is it more likely like a coyote Why? or cougar or something like that? Yeah. Anything mm-hmm. that helps us down the road do kind of like inquiries and, you know, investigations on what's happening. Yep. And even, yeah, okay, we can be, she's right. Well, we can go in more detail on that later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but okay. yeah. Yeah. Tara, I think you should talk about real quick the, like, homogeny of hormones in yeah. SCAT. Yeah. Um, so back to the story about different size poops. Obviously, mm-hmm. if when you come across a defecation event, if you can get the whole thing, that if, that's, you know, primo best option but mm-hmm. as we talk about with bear poops or you know some people have or i'm saying people some animals will have diarrhea you know and it's like everywhere mm-hmm. um so what's what's yeah. interesting yeah. <laughs> about hormones is they are not homogenous throughout a poop they have hot spots 
within uh-huh. like, like if we just look at think about regular logs like log poops uh-huh. um it is not going to be a, the hormone that we would we want to look for is not going to be homogenous throughout the log there is going to be mm-hmm. spots where it's found high and spots where mm-hmm. maybe it's not found at all so in these questions where like okay well we're we're come we want to sample bear poop how can we you know we don't want to miss taking a corner off one end and then you're missing this whole other you know mud pie of hormone data that mm-hmm. we would totally miss so one of the things um was a solution a suggested solution for the field handlers is like go in there and mix it up you know get in there oh, and like up your little poo pile yeah like yeah, yeah. like kneading bread <laughs> yeah, yeah out in the field walk it, walk just it. have fun with a nice little pile of poop get it all nice and homogenized uh-huh. and then take little pieces from here and there and sometimes that is hard to mm-hmm. do because it could be yeah i can imagine sometimes it's desiccated or yeah yeah really crumbly um, or yeah so mm-hmm. if that's not possible then take small pieces from all around that that would be the next best thing Gotcha. And is that, and you may not know this question, because this is maybe more of like a physiology question, is part of that because like, I, you got to think like, for at least some animals, like based on your metabolism, a poop takes eight hours to produce, six hours to produce, and your hormones could spike differently throughout that. Like, if I have a panic attack at hour three of a poop incubating, <laughs> would that show up in like in part of it, but not in other parts? I, I, uh, again, that might be a physiology question, but is that kind of the problem? I do not know the answer, okay. but what you discussed is probably what I would also educatedly guess with, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, we have sure. one, we have our intestines, which are a tube, and mm-hmm. your tr- your pu- our intestines are pushing this fecal matter through the tube. So right. maybe on one part of the intestine, you know, it gets absorbed in things more so than the, I don't know. Yeah, I, I really yeah. don't. I would just speculate. Well, yeah, and especially, I, I guess at least compared to, like, urine, which I imagine, like, your, your bladder isn't stratified, where, like, different right. parts of it are are all that different. It probably gets pretty well mixed up. Oh, that's so interesting. I've never thought of that. This is, I, I, I'm realizing we probably should have put a content warning at the beginning of this. I'm just like, <laughs> this is a lot of poop, guys. <laughs> We're getting this real dirty here later yeah Yeah, i mean with the title that we're going with like i feel like the the warnings in the title so anyway um (laughs) (laughs) so what um what questions from samples are like easier or harder to answer is it really easy to be like okay yep that's uh that's a species uh, you know a given species and sex is pretty easy but like I don't know, pregnancy is a little bit more challenging, or is pregnancy really easy, but stress levels are hard? Does it depend on the species? Uh, I think I, I think Misa's going to have some really good parts, but I'll, uh, I'll set her up here. Um, you think about data in general, if you have garbage in, you have garbage out. Um, mm-hmm. So the best thing is, you know, segueing perfectly from the hormone situation, um, we want the best sample possible to gather this information. But mm-hmm. for DNA, I think, um, you know, cause I, I worked a little bit more in the hormone aspect. So that's where my mind first goes. But I think for DNA, I think Misa might have some really cool uh, things. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
it's not it's it's that answer we hate giving which is like well it depends you know so in terms of easier or harder (laughs) there isn't necessarily um a set rule you know things like that i mean obviously certain things are going to take more work more effort whether they're harder or easier okay. i mean i guess that means they're harder because it's more work but yeah like you know typically mm-hmm. doing species identification is not hard but there are pitfalls you know some species are more challenging for weird genetic reasons so like felids um they have this weird thing so it depends like on i'm gonna roll back here so when we talk about genetics there's you know your nuclear genome like as in your chromosomes. Mm-hmm. And then there's also for, you know, mammals, uh, there's, you uh, sorry, more than just mammals, but there's your mitochondrial DNA. So these are organelles in your cells okay. that also have a genetic code. And they, so they, they kind of like mitochondria, are like the powerhouse mm-hmm. cells, people know this, but there's also genetic yeah. information in the mitochondria that um, encodes for certain proteins. Um, and these are pretty is, universal is that... across many, many species. Mm-hmm. Sorry, no, I was gonna, ask your is, question. is the mitochondrial <laughs> stuff the that's the stuff that's matrilineal, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Correct. So, right, so it's that, passed on it's from, so, from we talk mothers about... downwards. Um, mm-hmm, just if, mm-hmm. if anyone doesn't know what matrilineal is. Yeah. Okay. Now go. <laughs> yes. Yes. So we have to think. So you have to think about that because mitochondrial DNA. So because it exists in an organelle in your cell, and your one cell can have multiple mitochondria in it. So just by a factor of numbers, it's easier to target mitochondrial DNA because there's going to be more copies than your chromosomal nuclear DNA. And that's usually when we look with SCAT, we want to use mitochondrial DNA because it's just you're more likely to get good information. Uh, It doesn't mean you can't get nuclear DNA. It's just going to be harder. It's going to be less Uh quality probably, or it's going to be less numerous. Um, But... Because of the fact that you said it's matrilineal, there's certain questions you can't mm-hmm. answer with mitochondrial mm-hmm. DNA, right? Like you can't um, you can't do sex typing mitochondrial DNA. Um, it's really hard to do uh, individual identification with mitochondrial. There's just not enough diversity in the mitochondrial mm-hmm. DNA because mm-hmm. it's not it's very conserved across a number of species. Wouldn't it potentially be the same or similar from? Would it be the same for siblings? Like is mitochondrial DNA? Yeah, yeah. If they have the same mom, if they have the same mom, yeah. Yeah, so if you've got, like, full siblings. Okay, yeah. I So I had a concussion during my genetics class in college. (laughs) So I'm like, I, yes, it was terrible. (laughs) Um, Oh, my God. I have a lot of questions where I'm like, I really should remember this. I have a degree in biology, but I was concussed. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It was a mild concussion, but, um, yeah, not great. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you have to think about it when you're talking about like, okay, what's the purpose of the collection and what's the answer we're trying to get? And then that's mm-hmm. going to help determine, you know, some of these sample collection practices, because if we're saying like, hey, we, we don't care about species ID, because maybe there's only a certain animal in the landscape, or maybe the dog is only trained to a certain species, and so we're not worried, um, then, you know, you can probably target your nuclear genetics there. And that's where you're, you're you want to know. Cause if we talk about like mark recapture, this is a very common thing. We want to understand how many mm-hmm. individuals are on the landscape. So in that case, you have to use nuclear DNA, which means you have to have good samples. Um, and it's back to what Tara said, garbage in, garbage out. If you have any ambiguity in the sampling for the most part in the back in the lab, we're going to be like, we don't want to touch it. We don't even want to spend the money to play with it. But there are cases where you don't get a lot of samples, right? There's just 
reasons okay. why you you can only have a certain amount of time in the field. You don't collect, you don't find a lot of poop for whatever reason, or you don't find very good quality. And then that's like the opposite. You're like, okay, we have these precious samples and we're going to put everything we got at them. So it, it always, it always just depends in terms of what's easier or harder, because if you have the case of like, we collected a thousand scats. Okay, great. Now you can kind of pick and choose which ones you think are the best, um, especially mm-hmm. if you're looking at those nuclear questions, which are like uh, sex ID, individual ID, marker capture, things like that. Okay. But yeah, doing predator prey species ID is generally not too hard because you can usually do that with the mitochondrial DNA. Gotcha. And then like would parasite load... Also, I mean, that's that's not even necessarily genetics, I suppose. It's more on, like, much more of, like, a molecular level. Yeah, I mean, you can determine if a parasite is present, but it's hard to know, like, at what quantity just by a mm. genetic test. Okay. I mean, there are certain technologies now that kind of let you point more towards, like, how prolific is this, you know, genetic uh, signal, but uh, there's papers that talk about this all the time where you, it's really hard to do quantitative correlation with SCAT um, in general because there's so many variables that can impact like why you're seeing the the quantity that you are and it could be related to like because it seems like we try to do this a lot like okay, I have a wolf poop and we know that it mm-hmm. ate moose and it ate a snowshoe hare or something like that and then you start wondering like okay, so that's one moose and one snowshoe hare that's on the landscape and then now I have more wolf poops that also have moose in them. But then you don't know, are they eating from the same moose or are they eating different moose? And that's, you know, that, that's a little oh, bit simplistic when talking yeah. about large ungulates. But if you're talking about small mammals and then you're assuming like, okay, mm-hmm. every meal is one yeah. individual. Like, again, it's all about, you have to really understand your question and your metrics and mm-hmm. you're not going to get a perfect capture of like everything an animal ate because genetic systems are not perfect like we don't have a way to perfectly be like and there's a moose and there's a deer and there's a whatever like the the chemistries we use have a lot of variation in them and so they're not perfect Mm -hmm. in terms of quantifying yes yeah this may be an extremely simplistic analogy but i'm remembering like being in grade school and dissecting owl pellets and it was kind of like unless you had the skull it was really hard to say how many mice <laughs> were in mm-hmm. a given owl pellet because you're like exactly. trying to count ribs and you're just like, I don't know if this is a rib from a shrew or a vole or a mouse because I'm in yeah. fourth grade. But also, <laughs> you know, unless you found two skulls, you didn't really know for sure that there were two in there. Yep. Exactly. Okay. And also, Tara, it looks she- like you had something else you wanted to add. Yeah. <clears throat> um, to uh, accentuate like what Misa said when she's saying, um, you know, nothing is ever perfect. We can get as close as possible, but it's not, there's going to be issues because of what she just described. Mm -hmm. So therefore, because poop is kind of this renewable resource, perhaps maybe that might be a stretch to call it renewable, Mm. but because it is so available, you can have your sample number high. Like Misa mentioned, a thousand poops. I think when we did a project that she and I worked together, I think we had four thousand poops. And having oh, those high mm-hmm. numbers will decrease your error, will give you more buffer. Um, so that's also a perk about using poop is that you can get a whole bunch of it because you know the picture's not going to be perfect, but at least 
you know, when you got a good P value, it's going to be a good picture. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great. I mean, I think if logging can be renewable, then poop can be renewable. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it might not be quite as renewable as sunshine, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And I mean, I think the reality as well when we're looking at ecological monitoring is that our other samples are not perfect either. So I know I've been working on um, some stuff that's hopefully going to be working with some small cats in the Amazon and, you know, yeah, it, it, like cats, as Misa hinted at, can be tricky. Felids can be tricky. Um, but camera traps aren't perfect either, you know, as far as like, it's really, really hard, kind of impossible to identify an individual jaggerundi from a camera trap photo. Because um, they all kind of look the same. Unless you've got really, a really nice, distinct rosette pattern on a jaguar or something, it might be really difficult. Um to tell how many you've got from camera traps. And I know I was actually, I just saw this on Twitter yesterday. Um, some biologist from Panthera tweeted out a photo of some really crazy looking, it's like a teeny tiny wildcat from Gabon, I think, that had a crazy long tail. And he was like, this is one of the only known photos in existence of this species because they're almost entirely arboreal. And I almost tweeted back at him. I was like, does their poop land on the ground? <laughs> um, yeah because it might not i mean i know sometimes primates it's really hard to get scat samples from and it like everything wants to eat poop in the tropics so you're like in this like <laughs> ridiculous time crunch to try to find poop when it comes from an arboreal species and is coming down um but i think the point i wanted to make was as imperfect as scat may be i think it's still obviously we all think it's valuable especially when we're comparing it to you know something like a hair trap um or a camera trap or something mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yep yeah so what um we've kind of hinted at this but what are some of the limits of what we can learn from scat and this is you know just a, another good study design question like it, what are some questions that maybe would be really difficult to answer if we were trying to go at it through scat I mean, yeah, you just touched on it, um, you know, because like we touched like, oh, maybe a camera trap isn't as good, but like you can also flip it on its head and be like, well, you know, poop doesn't always tell you enough about behavior. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. you can extrapolate some things about behavior from poop, whether uh, some of that, some of that you can kind of understand mm -hmm. from like the whole picture of like, what's the hormone saying? What's the, you know, prey data saying? Um, but in terms of like live video feed, or photos of the animal doing certain things like obviously you know scat can't tell you that behavioral picture i i can jump in on that just i i feel like i'm here for you guys to tell the science and then i'm here to be like okay here's an anecdote that like may or may not fit tell me if this makes sense um i so last summer i read the wolverine way by doug chadwick which is about a really really cool project in glacier where they had all these radio collared wolverines and I kept reading it and there were parts of this book where I was like, oh my gosh, this is just, this is a pretty invasive study. Um, they talk about, you know, they're trapping the wolverines. They actually had surgically implanted transmitters in some cases instead of radio collars. Wow. Really, really intensive stuff. But some of the data they were getting, I was just like, wow, there's no way I could get that from SCAT, where they, they actually found that father wolverines will occasionally travel with their offspring even though they don't help raise them and they were only able to s show that by getting so many data points of the two gps yeah. collars so close together in time and space so many times and from scat you know we may find dad and sons poop next to each other but we can't say for sure that the son wasn't just following eight hours behind dad trying exactly. to pick up his leftovers or something like that. Yep. And they were able to show 
that at least in some cases, this does happen where they are in the same place at the same time for hours at a time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Tara, did you have anything else to say as far as stuff we maybe can't um, or difficult questions to answer using Scott? Even along the same lines, um, thinking about camera traps, getting an image. Um, I don't even know if this is a, a possibility, but you know, what if in pictures you can see that, wow, all of these animals' ears are now being uh, deformed or like maybe there's some toxin in the area that's mm -hmm. affecting the ear morphology. You know what I mean? Like we would not be sure, able to tell yeah. that from SCAT for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so there are d definitely really cool things that, um, you know, this piece of the puzzle SCAT can provide and this piece of the puzzle camera trapping can provide. And when we utilize yeah, I mean, all you the could tools, imagine like a deer could get shot in the butt and have a shattered femur. Mm -hmm. And you would might see increased stress levels, but you would have no idea that happened. But if you had a camera trap, you may be able to see like, oh, wow, something's really not right with its back right leg. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, depending on the shot. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you, you mentioned parasites earlier, too. And, and it is the case that like, you know, intestinal parasites that are shedding like worms. Um, like, yes, you can mm, see those. Mm -hmm. But there's other types of, you know, even worm parasites, um, pathogens, etc. that uh, because they become isolated in the body, you know, like a lot of uh, some of these nematode worms, they'll burrow into the tissue and then kind of create like a granuloma around them, like a bubble around them. So, the, you know, even if you are doing a genetic assessment to look for them, you may not find them because they've completely buried themselves within the body of the animal. So, um, I mean, granted, you can't necessarily see that from a camera truck either, but I think about um, there's certain types <laughs> of pathogens we where might you would see... into, like, necropsy territory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you would um, see, like, a physical change, you know, as an observation that you sure. would not necessarily pick up. Yeah. Well, I'm even thinking, like, I don't know, I, 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 I might be wrong, but, like, ear mites. I don't know. Like on physical yeah. exam, you'd be able to find ear mites yeah. relatively easily yeah. if you're looking, but I don't know if they would show up in poop. I right. have a yeah. great... or, or a yeast infection. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have a great limitory scat uh, story question. Yes, answer, answer to your question. <laughs> um, I was doing a project where we were trying to study hoof disease and okay. you know a bunch of ungulates out on the landscape you know were having this hoof disease um and to study this it was like in first in its inception we got in contact with a dairy farm and they had cows that were lame you know sick or whatever and they had healthy cows and they're like well we were we had our um, experimental design and we were going to start with these dairy cows we we're going to take poop from the lame ones you know the sick ones and take poop from the you know um healthy ones compare do our analysis and see what we get well if you can imagine we're at a dairy farm the cows are hooked up. Who's? exactly so we get there <laughs> we get there and it's like okay we're you're looking behind the cows and it's like a latrine of everyone's poop. Uh -huh. so it's like when the dairy farm guy was like i want a sample from this one and i want a sample from this cow because he knows who's healthy and who's not and yeah. so then once we got there we were like oh you know what we have to do we have to go in the cow's butt so i stuck my that was my hand. first thought i was like oh yeah. no 
Oh, yeah. no, we're getting real long elbow gloves, aren't we? <laughs> yes, we did. I was shoulder deep in so many cows that day, and it was the like one of the <laughs> coolest experiences I've ever had. I mean, I felt really bad for the cow, you know? Um, yeah. But God, it was I amazing. It was like the coolest thing <laughs> ever. <laughs> it was great. Oh, my God. Yeah, I actually, I had a, TikTok this summer of so with the wind farms we were working on were um kind of grazing grounds for beef cattle and I had it's like I was like yeah being a conservation dog is a handler is so nice I'm out in nature working with my dog and then I like flip the camera and it's like mostly it's just walking through cow poop though (laughs) just like endless cow diarrhea that you're like just plopping through and just being like, well, I don't know how my dog's going to find a dead bat in this, but yeah. darn it, he did sometimes. <laughs> like, um, yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I really uh, I, I get a lot of pleasure out of just bu- bursting people's bubbles on like how Instagrammable uh, this yeah. life is. Yeah. <laughs> like, actually, though, it's a lot of just walking through cow poop. Um, I, um, so, I have another... Um, thing to kind of touches on these this question and the question before and um you know i i'm sure i, I would like to hear misa's thoughts too so these limitations are what makes a sample hard um one of the things that happened to me is i got the opportunity with my lab manager at the lab misa and i used to work at to go out and work with our field handlers and our actual dogs and you know that had you know even though I was tra- like my degree that I went for school is uh, field work, um, it they didn't teach us how to do dog handling, searching for scat, right? So this was an amazing opportunity. And when we went out with her and um, with the other handlers and got to see like what they actually do, we walked through that, we hiked through and found samples. And it was so enlightening for me as, as a lab, a laboratory mm-hmm. person to see so many things that I never would have thought about. And one of them, just a small example, is these dogs that we were working with were really ball crazy. They like love their ball, mm-hmm. right? So as soon as they find something, you gotta reward them by throwing their ball. Well, the dogs running and coming back, like, here's my ball, and they're slobbery and all excited. And the oh, handlers uh, like trying to use their body as a shield, uh, like dome over this sample that they just oh, found God. while they're trying to throw a ball at the same time, all while not contaminating this sample. You have a dog oh, that's yeah. running around like crazy, a slobbery ball that's bouncing around like quite crazy. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the things we ended up doing is we genotyped all of our hand, our dogs, our, our conservation canines that we did. So it was uh-huh. like, if a dog was coming across a sample and they accidentally touched it with their nose and their nose is all wet and delicious and so kissable and they touch it and they get like little snot on the poop, you know, let's say we genotype it and it's like, oh, that was Scooby. That, you know, we found we found canine yeah. DNA on this sample because that was our dog that contaminated it. So yeah. I think that oh, was cool. such a that's cool so smart. insight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of what we did. Yeah. yeah, and we bring it up because I know it's not always the case that, um, you know, a field handler is working with a lab so intimately. And I think it's something that you should always offer as a suggestion. Like if they are doing uh, yeah. any kind yes. of genetic work yes. on canids, especially, you know, you should be like, oh, do you want to take a mouse swab for my dog just so you have it for your reference? And I think it's a great oh, that's suggestion. so smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a ton of sense. And I think, and on the dog handler side as well, I know like, 
I've thought a lot really hard about, you know, not just how my dog needs to alert so that they're not shoving their nose into the poop um, as like their trained behavior, you know, like we're really working on getting them. Um, and both my guys are pretty good about it. You know, they need to tell me where it is, especially if it's small, but they can't be drooling on it. And then also <laughs> helping, you know, making sure that all of our procedures as we're collecting things and as we're playing with the dogs and that they're used to the idea of how we reward and how we interact around a sample so that, um, you know, I'm not, I'm hopefully not having to battle them as much. Yeah. Um, like it's, and, and you know, of course that's not perfect, but yeah, Gina, I'd never even thought about that. That's so smart. Yeah, it, it was really great. I, to just really echo what Misa said, it was so valuable to have that moment to swap places. And what was also super cool is that when we went back to camp, we brought things from the lab and we were having them put on gloves. And I have pictures of the handlers like pipetting and everything that they've never uh -huh. got to do. So it was it was really cool. Oh, cool. It was such a great, also like bonding experience, team building experience. Oh my gosh. Yeah. What an opportunity. That's so great. Yeah, it was good. Hi, Quinn and Luca here. Luca is an Akita mix that I adopted from a shelter almost two years ago. From a very young age, Luca has struggled with some general fear and anxiety, um, especially out in the world. I randomly took a nose work class and noticed a massive difference in her behavior. She was a lot more interested in exploring her environment and loved going on adventures. I love being a Patreon because selfishly, I get so much great information about nature and conservation that I would not have gotten otherwise, like books to read and articles to look at. I also get access to Kayla's great knowledge. I am new to Patreon, but I'm excited to have a group of people to help Luca and I move forward with combining our love of nature and her natural scent ability. I love that I'm able to support someone exploring two of my favorite things, conservation and dog behavior. And maybe one day, with the support and knowledge from canine conservationness, I can get there myself. So, you know, let's talk about... So most of the time, unfortunately, you don't get to go out to the field. So what happens when you get your shipment of scat? Where, where, where does it go? What does it do? What happens between us sending it off to you and you sending us back the data saying, yep, you got the species you were looking for. Here's the information. Or like, ooh, unfortunately, we've got some, some other stuff going on here. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> go ahead, Misa. I can see it came off. Yeah, here. sorry. Yeah, so, I mean, when we get samples to the lab it's always really really exciting and um mm -hmm. it's really too bad that like back when we did this regularly um unboxing videos were not a thing yet on social media because oh we would have had a heyday yeah because i mean it's always just like you know especially with tara saying we there were there were projects we worked on where you'd get hundreds thousands of poops um not necessarily mm -hmm. all at once but you'd get a fair amount at once mm -hmm. so yeah, yeah i mean it's literally just christmas you're opening it up you're looking at everything there's sort of this like you're kind of looking across this breadth of what you're looking at. I mean, we, we looked at a, a, a variety of ungulates and predator species. So we've seen lots of different types of poop. So usually it's, it's pretty boring when it first shows up. You know, you just kind of uh, look at your inventory list. You got kind of like collate everything, make sure it makes sense, make sure nothing's missing, make sure nothing's leaking, um, possibly mm -hmm. cause contamination. And then that's all going to get put into the freezer as fast as possible. And then we'll go ahead and start, you know, thinking about processing. And so, you know, if we're doing a genetic processing, we're going to collect a little bit of 
sample from the poop and then we're going to go through like like i kind of said these like chemical processes to purify those nucleic acids and then we'll go ahead and run genetic analyses and usually we're running more than one type so um you know it, this takes many many days to because so like just the process of like getting nucleic acid out that usually takes two to three days um for a batch of samples and then when you do the genetic analysis um depending on how many things you're looking at you know if you're doing individual identification that's going to be a lot of markers uh, because it takes a lot of information to get like that genetic fingerprint you know so just like we dna fingerprint humans we usually try to do the same thing with animals if we're looking for individuals um and then we if we're going to do genetics we have to do that first because if we're going to do hormones, the scat is going to get transformed. I'm going to let Tara take over. Oh, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so what if it, once it comes to the hormone side, why we have to do it in this order is, as we discussed earlier about the homogeneity of hormones or lack thereof of hormones being homogeneous in a poop, um, we freeze dry the sample so it turns it into like uh, we eventually turn it into a powder. And then once it's in a powder form, then we can mix it extremely, extremely well. Um, and once it's like completely homogenized, we take that uh, sam sample from that and do our hormone analysis. So we are completely um, drying it out, mixing it all together and putting it in a state where, you know, you can't, you can't go back and get some, some DNA from it. Um, so that's why, in our experience, we do it in that order specifically. Gotcha. Wow. So, yeah. And then there's just a, a lot of pipetting. Some... So much pipetting. So some, much some, pipetting. Some, some, <laughs> some centrifuges, some PCR. Yep, yep. I don't, I don't, I don't some, know how much some, detail some to go into, Western but all of those like, things. Yeah, <laughs> no, every, yeah. All the letters of the alphabet, PH. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we do yeah. some Eliza's. We do some flow cytometry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, are there like like electrogel phoresis? Like, there's like the gels and the, <laughs> the little lines, and then you have to measure them. Like, is that is that yeah. part of it? Well, we were okay. we were really fancy, and we did do gels occasionally. Usually, you only do gels to confirm that something amplified before you're gonna um, oh, sequence okay. it. So sequencing means that you're gonna actually get like that physical like letter nucleotide. Um, map from the actual sample um so you're gonna actually be able to visualize like what is this actual nucleic signature um but we often used um what's called capillary electrophoresis so it's like a very very similar okay. concept to gel electrophoresis um but you can do um, it a lot faster and um because gel, what gels do all it's doing is it's migrating your dna fragment um across you know, a, a structure, sorry, a scaffolding that limits the size. So like the longer it takes to move, mm -hmm. the, the larger it is, right? So you can do the same thing in a capillary. Mm -hmm. The longer it takes to go through, the larger it is. Um, and so then you can kind of use like a fragment size. And then that way you're delimiting the, the data just to like a number, right? It's like, so this is a 300 mm -hmm. fragment um, sequence versus a 250 fragment sequence. Um, and this is specifically to the types of analyses where, if you, you know that there's a lot of variability across the different targets that you have, so the different species that you have, then you're able to be like, okay, 250 means cougar, whereas 300 means wolf, right? So, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we don't necessarily, we don't always have to sequence it, like physically look at its nucleic signature to know what it is. 
but it's okay. all about your reference database. And that's a big thing in all genetic labs is you have to have good reference data for whatever species of interest or species of interest you're looking at. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was just, I, well, we were just talking separately over email earlier this week because I got halfway through a grant proposal and I was like, oh no, I don't know how to find a genetics lab to work with. <laughs> how do I do this? Um, so yeah, and you both were very helpful with that as far as trying to track down, you know, the right databases and those sorts of things. So next up, let's talk some data analysis. We've extracted our information. Do we get a printout? Like what happens next? Again, so far in my career, I've primarily just worked as like, I'm the hired gal and I show up, I find the poop, I send it out. And then, you know, maybe I see the publication later. Mm -hmm. um, what happens next? <laughs> what does it look like? Oh, the world of magic data analysis. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, we run these really cool fancy machines, like Misa was saying, um, and it spits it out in a data file, right? We all know mm -hmm. what that is going to be. And what's really fun is that in that lab, uh, I was still using floppy disks in, you know, the 21st century. So that was fun. <laughs> but, wow. um, it, it just goes to show how unfunded conservation is, but that's another story. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, some of our machines are so ancient that you have no choice yeah. <laughs> because yeah. you can't replace them. You got to keep yeah. using those floppy disks. Yeah, sure that's do. wild. Where do you even buy floppy disks? Do you have like a bunch of them sequestered for future yeah, use? They were, can they you were sequestered. Can you? Oh my god! Can you overwrite them? Are they like? Like, can you reuse them? I, I don't yeah, even remember. Yeah, you would delete files, okay, you know, once it was like a way that we could physically take the data on a floppy disk from the machine in one room to our desks where, you know, real internet is, and then we would put it on there. Um, okay. But yeah, it's pretty funny. We also had to use uh, cassette tape cases. You know, like not the tapes, but the yeah. plastic cases. We had this device where the only thing that worked is you take two empty cassette tape cases, you tape them together, and that was like the perfect thing to do this one part. And it was just funny. It's like, oh God, if it when it breaks, you're like, you gotta go to the thrift store and find some cassette tape. Cassette tape, hopefully in a case. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Yeah. But anyway. Well, and it's just, it's ridiculous because I'm sure these are like gajillion dollar machines. <laughs> yeah. Which is why we're yeah. not replacing them. Yeah. Um, but you've got these like gajillion dollar machines that still use freaking floppy disks. That's wild. Yeah, it's funny. But um, so once we get the data, it's just a data sheet. And that's when the fun starts where we can really start playing some information from it. And as Misa had said earlier, metadata is what really like frames up our picture you know we have the everything about the animal the poop is the star of the show but the metadata all around it is really important so if you're out in the environment there's things like weather time of day um gps locations uh you, you know what what the um the handler might want to guess what they think this animal is, given on the morphology of the scat. So all of that is parsed out, and we start to match up the data from the field to the data we're getting in the lab. And this is all just spreadsheets, really, um, databases, <clears throat> and a lot of data hygiene, 
um, putting things in the right format. I mean, there is a lot of slog that's just all of us have to deal with where you put a date in Excel and it shows up as a six-digit number that means nothing, and you have to go through all these things and make sure that they match. Um, so, it, you know, once it gets in that format, it's just like data analysis, like statistics heaven, where you're just going through and organizing things, putting things in charts, seeing if anything looks weird, um, box and whisker plots, let's see, you know, you start putting all these data points in visualization so you can hopefully see a picture that looks really cool. Um, that And that's, uh, that's the, I really enjoyed that part. I really had a great time working with, you know, a ton of data and, um, seeing what story it's trying to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, we were lucky great. to play with a data set where it was kind of like, okay, we want to know what it is. We want to know what it ate. And then certain types of samples would also have hormones as well because we'd identify it as like, oh, it's a wolf. Um, it's a female wolf. We want to see if that female's pregnant. Because uh, we also yeah. have the time of year, right? So uh, we also mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. you know, et cetera. You can also look at, at whether a, a female is lactating from the hormone analysis as well. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, but again, the data doesn't say like pregnant or things like that. It has to be interpreted, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. it always starts mm -hmm. with this interpretation, just like Tara said, then it gets all put together. And then you can kind of get lost in it because mm -hmm. there's so many variables <laughs> in some cases, yeah. right? And one of the things, one thing that, you know, it's, it's kind of like, so you have the main question, you know, is the question, how many visuals are in the landscape? Okay, so now we're going to do some really fancy, you know, landscape analyses and use models whose names I can't remember anymore, you know, to <laughs> try to map the points across, you know, take your GPS units and your time and who it is mm -hmm. and your marker capture and blah, blah, blah. Like there's a million things you could do. It's just like Tara said, you're usually you're just trying to get to like a final visualization, whether it's a map with things on it, or it's a bar chart with like distribution of prey, or it's number of individuals and, you know, are they packs? Are they not packs? You know, things like that. So there's, it's, this is such a hard question to answer because it always depends <laughs> on the question yeah. being asked of the data. And then we can find stuff. And that's always like the pitfall in some ways with scientific mm. data is that you could assign someone to just play with that data mm -hmm. for like hours and hours and hours, but just try and find like some random correlation that we don't know exists. Because like with the metadata, as Tara mentioned, you know, like maybe there's some correlation between like if it was a rainy day, there's less data from those samples, or maybe it's the opposite. And then that kind of can help you understand you know, I think there's like, this is probably what's missing in terms of like lab information going back to the field is, are there certain things that handlers can be doing differently or can be aware of? That means you'll have better success in the lab later. Um, and a lot of times those questions aren't necessarily being asked explicitly, but technically they're hidden in the data if you go look for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. There's so much to think about. And well, and Tara, so you mentioned that you had done a little bit of a test seeing like, when the handlers have a guess, like how how accurate were they? I'm sure it varies wildly. Like again, I assume I could probably tell the difference between like elephant and hippo. Um, yeah. Even yeah, though we, you know, they're both big yeah. and a lot of vegetative matter, I could probably tell the difference. Yeah. But like I know, 
I don't know, like Red Fox and Bobcat are supposed to be really difficult to tell the difference. Like, yeah. what is kind of the success rate like for the human half of the equation? Well, we had, um, what was pretty cool is that the data, the, the specific project I'm thinking about is the field biologist had their first guess and they had like their second guess and a third guess mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. would rate them on how confident they are in oh, okay. each guest. Um, so just that, I mean, like, I, I imagine that's probably asking a lot of a field biologist. So that was so awesome that they were able to provide that. But that alone, we were able to plot that and see, compare it to our results. Um, and it was pretty cool. So we had a, um, a really experienced, I think he was the director at the time, um, in the, and he had like one of the best scores. And I mm -hmm. don't have the data in front of me, but if I'm remembering correctly, I want to say it was around 80% accurate. Um, That's pretty good. Yeah. That is fairly good. And, uh, you know, everyone trailed from that. You know, and some people could only work for half the season. So, you know, the, the power of their analysis is going to be lower because we have less data points. But um, yeah. <clears throat> it is really, uh, of course, you have these wonderful scats that are like the textbook example of mm -hmm. an, a felid versus a canid. But when somebody has diarrhea, you don't know. You know, like, and, and no fault to the, to the, you know, the field scientists. It's like, sometimes you just, it's just going to be impossible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or tell. it's super desiccated or it's, you know, like crumbled or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. That makes sense. Yeah. So what, um, gosh, how, you know, circling back, I hinted at this earlier, you know, like, as far as finding labs, how different are different labs? Um, <laughs> you know, what are some of the things that you're thinking about as if you were trying to design a study and say you're not embedded in a research university where there's a good chance you're just going to be able to, you know, find someone either through your university or through connections within your university? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is they're all very different, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. It's it's funny because it's like, you know, it's the scientific method. So, you know, we all follow the same parameters and we all, you know, technically publish on similar things. But the nuances are different in the methodologies. And then obviously mm -hmm. the biggest thing is specializing because um, for right. most labs, most people, right, there's only so much time in your day, in your life to become an expert on a certain species or a group of species. And so it's, it's not, you know, we don't really have these wildlife service labs, really. I think that's going to start changing um, because, you know, like veter veterinary forensics is starting to become a little bit more of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, we, we know that conservation and forensics kind of go together on some level. We know that, like, you know, legal wildlife trafficking is connected to crime and organized crime and things like that. So mm -hmm. I think it's going to change, but... In terms of, especially when we talk about academia, you know, generally 
you're talking about someone who's dedicated their entire career towards, like I said, one species or a group of species. So it can be really hard to be like, okay, I want to, or, or like, or even like thinking about geography, you know, are you looking at something mm-hmm. in South America or a certain state, you know, as we know, mm-hmm. animals don't respect our borders <laughs> and our boundaries. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> Uh, it's kind of like, it may not be because like, you're like, oh, I'm going to do a study maybe in like, let's say California, but you know, it might be just as good to talk to someone in Arizona, Nevada, because again, those populations are probably moving across those same landscapes, you know, similar with any of the smaller countries. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, you kind of have to do your own research, so to speak, to Mm -hmm. find a lab, you know, academics are the best place to start. Um, You know, sometimes they don't, have time to answer you and that sucks. Sometimes mm-hmm. they are completely open to the idea of like, oh yeah, you have a study you want to do. Um, like, yes, it costs this much, but not all of them have the time or luxury or like capacity to mm-hmm. process samples for you. And, um, you know, funding is always a problem too in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm hoping that will change, you know, like it is, it's my own dream to kind of have a wildlife for, uh, services lab that's really broad and can open to a lot of different species. But it's, it's like anything else. You don't want to monopolize analysis to a central place, right? Because you want to respect yeah. the people that are gonna, that are in these locations that understand these animals or these ecosystems the best and have them mm-hmm. have as much opportunity as possible to research and have access to those samples as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I know, I mean, between reaching out to the two of you, I did a little bit of Twitter research. And then when I was just trying to find a and I was just trying to get a couple ballpark numbers and names for a grant proposal, that's like a total shot in the dark. And the other thing that I did that I, you know, as you said, as far as reaching out to academics, I found a couple papers with the target species I was thinking about, and then tracked down, you know, the authors of those papers, if they had been doing genetic analysis and asked them, like, who did you work with? Do they still, mm-hmm. are they still mm-hmm. in operation? You know? And, um, you know, on, on the note, and maybe on the note of the fact that they don't respect borders, you know, one of the things, at least one of the labs brought up is we would want known samples from your area because we have, like, our current target reference information is from, like, I think it was from Belize, and you're talking about Ecuador. Um, so in that case, they were actually oh, they yeah. were far enough apart 100%. that they were, they were like, yeah, we, we mm-hmm. would need some known samples from Ecuador, even though we have worked with those species before. Yes, yep. absolutely. And that, that goes right yeah. back to that reference database. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Because it's not enough to be like, oh, yes, we've worked with this species, but not in that area. <laughs> right. And, and it's hard yeah. because if you're, if, especially if you're kind of naive to the biological history of a species, um, mm-hmm you know, like wolves alone are challenging because they have mm-hmm. some isolated populations across the U S and then there's like, you know, arguments and evidence of like, some of them are unique subspecies now because of how mm-hmm. isolated they've become. And we know this with cougars, like Florida Panthers are arguably mm-hmm. their own population, their own species at this yep. point. And orcas um, here in the Pacific Northwest. Too. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So this happens all the time, and and as someone that's maybe naive to that, you wouldn't know that until mm-hmm. you have access to that research and that knowledge. Yeah. I mean, I know. So I wrote a Fulbright grant last year, and I wrote the whole Fulbright without realizing that Oncias are now called Northern Tiger Cats by the IUCN because they've been split into two different species. Um, <laughs> and I made it through this whole that's grant without ever realizing it. that. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, like, I have this pet peeve because, so the company I work for now, like, our whole thing is that we're trying to stop extinction. And you get stuck as a geneticist in taxonomy. And, you know, there's arguments back and forth about whether taxonomy is worth anything because, you know, evolution is fluid. It's, it's happening now. Yeah. And so genetics are changing. Um, so it's, it's really, really hard to be like, in this snapshot in time, is it its own species? Is it a subspecies? Like what, you know, right. and obviously we, we haven't but we love our discovered boxes. all life either. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but I love categories. Come on. That's I mean, what I was just going to say. I'm with yeah. you. Yeah. Us as humans, would, we want to categorize God, If everything. I was a rich dude in the 1700s, I would have loved being a taxonomist. <laughs> oh, I know. Right. <laughs> I know. Oh my god! I, I just I want mean, to categorize stuff. It would have been the best. Um, yeah, no, that's. that's I mean, fair we need now. parameters. We need them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But we're getting just animated like enough point. that Niffler is like getting worried back here. Oh no! Taxonomy. I'm real excited about taxonomy. But I mean, like, oh, just Niffler. to your point, um, you know, like we thought there was only like two species of giraffe, like just a couple years uh-huh. ago, and now we know there's like nine. And what? Yes. Yes. I missed uh, that. Yeah. yeah. Go look it up on Wikipedia. It's oh on God. there. Um, and so that's its own frustration because when you're talking about, especially species that are endangered, um, right. to go from, you know, okay, it's two subspecies to like, oh, now it's nine and they're all geographically distinct. Now, do we have samples that represent all, all of those populations? No, definitely not. You know, and so right. like, this is kind of one of those things that, we have to always be empathetic to in science is that the data because sometimes people get frustrated right like now mm-hmm. the data is wrong because we didn't know this thing right but it's like but again that's going to happen there has to be some grace in the Ooh. fact that the way we approached a question at one point is definitely not going to be accurate across time because we'll learn more and more and more things um but yes it's the whole point is just it understanding your target species and the the many ins and outs of their mm-hmm. life history is so so critical so that when yeah. you do that genetic analysis or your hormone analysis or whatever it is your spatial analysis that you're going to have data that's going to hopefully you know be relatively accurate for a larger period of time yeah yeah that makes sense so and i, I think that's a good note to pivot on um looking forward to the future like what are some of the things that we may be able to see as far as field identification or other tools we maybe we'll get to see in our lifetimes like i know we've got the nabit nabit device from conservation x um micro or yes. portable labs like what else do we what, what what do we have to look forward to as very expensive toys later in our careers yes well hopefully they're not going to be as expensive um right no, we'll see so. we'll see with all these supply chain issues going on but oh. um <laughs> So you said it, yeah, so the NABIT, that's something I'm very proud to be working on. I'm going to answer the first part of the question first, though, which is what are the technologies that we are going to be looking forward to? So one of the big things is kind of like, it's almost unrelated in a way, but because of things like Elon Musk's Starlink, which is going to revolutionize access to the internet everywhere in the world, that is Mm going to open up a lot of doors to like remote capabilities to have, you know, real time, um, actionable things happening because you're not remote anymore. It isn't like, Oh, I got to go out in the field and collect all the data. And then like a few days later gets to where it needs to be because now I have cell phone service. Like 
soon that's not going to be an issue anymore. Like we can censorize everything if we wanted to. Uh We can put camera traps everywhere and like real time them, ping them off the satellites, et cetera. So that's one thing to think about. Like that's, it's well known that advancement in technology is exponential, right? So like, if you think about the time between like when the, when the wheel was made to like the industrial revolution and then the time between the industrial revolution and now, and like the advances we've made, it's an exponential curve. So that, you know, we are going to see some major changes just in the next 10, 12 years, probably. Um, and I see this a lot just because I work for what is considered a conservation technology company. Right. So a lot of what we do isn't just based on like, Oh, conservation, like kind of those like ecology, biology approaches. It's more about how do you create scalable and accessible, accessible, meaning like it's cheap, it's easy to disperse to multiple people, multiple languages, um, so that you can empower a lot of people very quickly, right? Because we know that the problems that we're facing with climate change and habitat loss and all these things, pollutants, you know, like name it, uh, we can't, we can't take 10 more years to kind of get there, even though that's sort of the plan, right? We have this whole 2030 framework for how to not lose biodiversity. So that's what has to be the solution are these types of things that allow you to go into the field and get information really quickly so that it can be actionable really quickly. And so you mentioned the NABIT, and that is something I'm very proud to be working on. So the NABIT actually stands for the Nucleic Acid Barcode Identification Tool. And so... It was originally thought of to be like a handheld sequencer, but we can't actually sequence in real time. That's like where we don't quite have the chemistries yet to do that. Um, there are people working on it though. So, you know, it's, it's coming, it's coming eventually. So, and, what, and why I mentioned that is because when we're talking about taxonomy, the best way to understand like what an unknown in front of you is, is to just sequence it and then like blast it against a huge reference database that then tells you like an algorithm will tell you, Oh, it's most closely related to this or most closely matches this. And therefore, you know what it is. So we're kind of doing one step below that, which is that we create chemistries that understand a question. So like, it's a presence absence, you know, is it X, Y, Z? So you can be like, Oh, I want to know if it's cougar, bobcat, red fox or, you know, insert other species here. And we could create a custom chemistry that would do that for you. And it would work on our handheld tool. So it's portable, it's battery operated. You don't have to use a pipette. Um, uh, You don't need cold chain storage, nothing. The whole point is that you can extract the DNA, run the sample and get your answer all within 40 minutes. And we're trying to reduce that even further. So, I mean, it's still in development and it's, it's really hard getting those assays. So assay means like the chemistry that can detect a target. That's what takes the longest amount of time. And it's partially because, especially we're talking about endangered species, as I just mentioned, if you don't have good reference data or access to reference samples, meaning like Mm -hmm. this sample definitely came from a giraffe and it was definitely this species in this place, um, it makes it even harder. Yeah. So it was gotcha. very long-winded, and I, thank you for listening to that. <laughs> no, I mean, it sounds fascinating, and, like, it would be a pretty exciting game-changer in the field, especially when we're in this, in the conservation dog world, you know, if you, if for some reason your dog is potentially alerting you to non-target species, 
that are visually similar to your target species having something like that i mean it wouldn't necessarily it wouldn't be fast enough to decide whether or not to reward your dog Mm-hmm. But it would at least be a big time saver and space and money saver as far as like, okay, do I want to bother sending this off for the next mm-hmm. step of its career uh, in the lab? Um, yeah, because like it could be something that you do at the end of the day back at camp. Or like, okay, I'm going to mm-hmm. run these yeah. like 10 samples and see if they're even worth keeping maybe yeah right exactly or i know like on the wind farm last summer there was a couple times where we found a bit of a wing fragment of a bat and we were supposed to always you know alert you know have we're supposed to identify the species um and usually we had enough um of a bat but sometimes we didn't or sometimes it was a little bit questionable like if it had rained and the carcass was really soggy um and particularly if then the forearm measurement is a specific length, then there's a chance that it's an endangered species and then people need to know right away. Right. So, um, like, that's the sort of thing that would be a huge game changer um, versus, you know, the whole song and dance that we had to do this summer instead of, like, trying to take all these pictures and all these measurements. And sometimes mm-hmm. it still had to go in for DNA analysis. And then, obviously, it could be a couple weeks before we knew if that had been an endangered bat or not um, that had been killed. And, you yeah. know, at that, at that point, it's been so long, mm-hmm. you know, it's, yeah, it's it can't not go back and, at least. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's yeah, like so, the whole point, like just what you said, actionable. That was always mm-hmm. the point. It was kind of inspired by the illegal timber trade um, because that's actually oh, uh-huh. really, it's, it's really bad. You know, <laughs> we have like these mm-hmm. whole forests being completely decimated and then they try to, you know, say it's one thing and not the other because it's CITES listed or whatever, yeah. you know, so it can apply yeah. to anything. Timber is, is really challenging. We have kind of like another thing, a development that we're hoping will help us deal because trying to extract DNA from timber is very, very hard, even in a lot. Oh. Um, so that's one of the things that we have. Yikes kind of going on in the underground, hoping mm-hmm. that will come to be. Um, yeah. And the other thing I want to mention too, before Tara responds is that there's another program in our company and they're co- making what's called the Sentinel. And mm-hmm. it is a, an AI machine learning algorithm that can be used in conjunction with a camera trap. And okay. <laughs> what it can do is it can give you, rem- so what you do is you train a model. So like, let's say you're looking at, gorillas in mm-hmm. you know the congo or something um mm-hmm. so there's a couple things you can do because normally what happens right you have camera trap and you leave it out there for like a month and then you gotta go hike out there mm-hmm. and you get the data and you bring it back and then you sit there and you watch hours and hours and hours and then you say oh there's a gorilla mm-hmm. so yeah. the whole point of the machine learning is that you can train this algorithm to, to be like that is a gorilla like so it knows when it sees an image that looks like a gorilla alert, alert. Say, that's yeah. a gorilla and then it alerts and you know like earth rangers oh, are already cool. doing this in africa um so this uh-huh. is you know it's, it's a similar idea but again it's about we want it to be as accessible as possible so rather than you being a coder and someone has to understand ai we're also kind of delivering this system, like a, a user interface that lets you train your own model without having that programming knowledge. You know, you just cool. have to give it enough images of like, this is my target, uh-huh. this is not my target. Um, and we also are trying to push it to the perspective of it can also understand and alert on behavior. So you can determine wow. an animal that is sick or that that is, you know, doing something that you're particularly interested in the moment and it can it also mm-hmm. like tag that with the image it's reading i'm really excited about it it's gonna has yeah. so many different applications and it's just gonna be so helpful i saw yeah, well 
You go ahead, Tara. I, I saw, I, I'm sure uh, you'll add the things later on, but um, if anyone can, should go follow Misa's conservationist page because I think, Misa, you had posted it on that, of a little clip of the gorillas, right? Showing, like, walking. And then one was, like, digging, right? Is digging, that what it yeah. was? Yep, digging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. It was amazing. It was so cool. Yeah, it's on the Conservation yeah. X Labs um, oh, as that's well. What it was. Yeah. But, okay. no, I, I shared it, definitely, because I'm, yeah. I'm like, this is yeah. so cool. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to dig that up. Um, Oh my gosh. Well, and I'm just imagining, so I was just home in Wisconsin and my dad is doing like a DNR community science um, program where he's got um, a bunch of camera traps out on his property. He lives on 40 acres in the middle of nowhere. Um, And, you know, we were, we were coding images together and he had after like a week of data, uh, like a week of camera trapping, like 400 images. Wow. Um, And it would have been really nice if it could have flagged because there were a couple of a bobcat on there. Um, which is much more interesting than the dozens and dozens of pictures of ravens that we had. Um, you know, and it would have been really exactly. nice if it could have flagged those, even if it wasn't perfect. Yeah. But just at least to have it kind of be like, hey, these ones, give these ones an extra look. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, or even like, yeah. here's movement, oh, like, so here's cool. an actual living thing. Yeah, versus yeah, the well, it is, tree it's branch a, it's a fluttering. Still- yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a still trap uh, or like a still got it, got it. camera, so it, it doesn't have as much um, video. Yeah, it's not. It's to, not like, a real time so video. Kind of yeah, got it. Yeah, yeah. It was a so a little bit easier, but still. So okay, I think our last question because we do have to wrap up here. We try to keep it at an hour, and I don't want to. Our listeners are probably going a little glossy eyed already. Um, <laughs> I mean, I could talk forever, but well, we'll respect. I we'll respect everyone's time. I think um, I know you're looking at our last question, right? Yes. Um, yes. Yes. I I want to, and we can edit this out, however much you know, whatever sure. you want. But I want to um, make a point, which I think would be really uh, mm-hmm. important. Um, like what Misa was describing at her company, working on the Nabbit. Mm-hmm. You want to zoom out for a second and think about big picture things. So. As we all know, in our world right now, we have a problem, or maybe I shouldn't say problem, we have a bit of a struggle with scientific literacy in the population. Um, And part of that is because you think about these machines that Misa and I have been talking about. These are huge, enormous, heavy machines. How is anyone supposed to, like, get any experience with that, right? You have to go into a lab, and, you know, not everyone can do that. Right. So what's... I think is so critical and pivotal about companies like Conservation X that MISO uh, works for is you're getting this bridge. You're getting this bridge mm-hmm. between these people, these scientists who can sit here and speak all these really cool sciencey language and everything like that. But then you take something that's so much more consumable to the everyday mm-hmm. person and they can be involved in science as well. And it even stretches even further on that, even to like the social justice realm where we have indigenous communities who are out and worried and noticing, you know, because they treat the land and the animals a lot more respectfully than, you know, a a super westernized culture does, you know, in general. Um, So they have a lot better pulse on what's happening in an ecosystem. And then they can say, 
I'm noticing um, the moose around the land are acting weird or something, and they have access to a tool like what Mises company makes, they can be out in the field scanning things or doing something like that. And that also provides this, um, it's, it's empowering them, you know, yeah. and other people around the globe. So it's not just the white savior complex of being like, mm -hmm. oh, I come to your area and let me preach to you about how everything you're doing is, you know, save the whales and everything like that. They're, we're having this, this big bridge between these, these communities. And that is what technology can do for us. So I think that's, that's yeah. so cool. You know, everything that Mises is working on and other technology companies like that. Yeah, I mean, no, I'm, I'm <laughs> yes! I just had to applaud <laughs> that speech. <laughs> oh, thank you for that, Misa. Yeah. <laughs> we love our ham horn. I'm so, glad you, I'm so glad you brought that in, Tara. Um, and I think, you know, I'm thinking even uh, like so. I'm I'm heading off to Kenya now in two weeks um, to go help out with some scat detection dogs that are supposed to be finding cheetah scat. And this organization is on an incredibly tight budget. I'm volunteering. My, I'm donating my time for six weeks mm -hmm. um, for them and. You know, if they could fundraise for something like this, you know, I, I know a big issue that they've got right now is that a, um, a cup, one of their dogs in particular is finding a lot of caracal scat instead of cheetah scat. Um, and yeah, like a tool like this, if they could buy one, the, the Nabbit, then they could save so much more money on accidentally storing, shipping, sending in these caracal scats and then right. paying for the for analysis that they don't need. Um, and mm -hmm. they're on such a tight budget. Um, and I know like canine conservationists would probably buy one of those and we're, I, I mean, I'm not going to say never, but like <laughs> it is not in our 10 year plan to have a genetics lab as part of our organization. <laughs> um, well, and it, and it shouldn't have to be either, right? Like right. Yeah, to change these things to ridiculous. run <laughs> yeah. in general. No, first of all, that's really amazing that you are donating your time. And, you know, that's what I love about the conservation community is that there's so many people mm -hmm. that they just, they care. Like you, there's no um, limit of passion. Everyone who does this yeah. is very passionate and very driven mm -hmm. and they're willing to hustle for the sake of, you know, what these real problems are. And so thank yeah. you so much for doing that. And, you know, yeah. as soon as we have something ready to go, I'll let you know. And we're always looking for field yes, partners. Please. And oh my gosh. So of course mm -hmm. that's established. And yes, please come check us out. Conservationxlabs.com. Um, and, you know, I'm happy to answer any questions I have to do with it, but yeah, we're, it's not like ready yeah. yet. We're getting there. We're, get, we're getting real close. <laughs> yeah. I, but yes, during exactly, this interview, went and followed you on Instagram and Twitter. So. <laughs> Like if my, if my eyes were wandering, that was what I was doing. I was following y'all on Twitter. Um, yeah. So I think we're going to do one last just fun question. If you guys are ready for it, do you have anything else that we wanted to bring up or circle back to anything else I didn't ask that we should have talked about before we've got our last fun question? I, I need to cut myself off because like you said, Kayla, mm -hmm. it could go on and on and on. So I we will, we are certainly going to have to do a repeat. <laughs> <laughs> we are down. Uh, yeah, no, we're totally good. Yeah, we can do our last right. question and wrap it up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, tell me your best, worst, most memorable poop experiences. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, right. Jericho. Yeah, Jericho. 
Oh man! So I told you about my cow story. Like the, um, I, I got to. Uh, I don't know. Get how it from the source. To. Yeah, I I stuck my arm up a bunch of cow butts, and it was like the coolest thing ever. I, again, you know, kudos to the cows. They they were excellent sports. Um, oh, anyway, girls. so uh, yeah, they were so sweet. Um, my very memorable. Ooh! Oh, oh. Oh, it is hard to pick one. Okay, I'm going to go with this one. My very favorite poop to work with, hands down. Favorite, love it, is so amazing. Sage grouse. It is a bird, like a a, a, a ground bird, right? Um, here in, It's like a weird I, I know it's here in gray Washington. chicken. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. It's, it's in the scrub habitat, which has sagebrush everywhere. And their poop smells like sage. It is so aromatherapy and like i just love oh working gosh. with it you're just like in this spa it's like such a nice break from all the regular shit smells that we i mean people are putting from. snail <laughs> snail slime on their faces can we can we monetize this and use this for conservation <laughs> that's my favorite go sage gross Woo! I mean, like, talk about monetizing it. Like, the amount of bunny fur we would get out of a wolf poop. Like, if we could, like, sanitize that on some level, like, it should definitely yeah. be reused for something. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Because like, like you said, it's a renewable resource. You can't, if you chop down, if you burn the sage, uh, yeah. the whole sagebrush, and there's no sage grouse left, we can't have our fancy sage grouse poop. Yeah. Exactly. I think exactly. we. <laughs> If we live in a capitalist society, I guess yeah. we have to leverage it. I mean, Where's I'm not, not the hugest fan, but... Okay, okay, Misa, go ahead. We really need to cut this off. We have off the rails. <laughs> I know. I, so, my favorite it was always bear. Um, but, but bear is like a gamble. It's like a roulette. So, you know, because bears are omnivores, right? So they can have blood uh -huh. meals where they eat, you know, another animal or especially in the spring and the, the summer mm -hmm. they can have berry meals um because uh -huh. they love huckleberries and things like that and so literally we would have these poops that we would open up and it would smell like jam or pie and like there's like literally <laughs> no other poop smell to it, it just smell like it, it, you almost have, like start salivating yeah. while you're oh, sitting yeah. there with this poop <laughs> yeah. and you're trying yeah. to be like i should not be salivating right now <laughs> Like, and then wow. I think one I'm other thing, now. yes, and then uh, one other thing too is like, I remember one time I was working with some elephant poop and we wouldn't get like a whole bunch of it. We would get like just like a mm -hmm. few golf balls of a, a big elephant poop. But one time I found this like whole beetle, like this big oh. beetle, like, so, you know, these are African elephants and it was like perfectly like this beetle, you, you know, it just got accidentally eaten and <laughs> it made it all the way through and it was, you know, I mean, it wasn't alive, but it, it was... <laughs> Very intact, and I was very impressed by that. That's amazing. <laughs> he was just living oh. his life, and that elephant just munched, like, you know, yeah. his whole branch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And his whole house. Um, yeah, actually, it's funny. So I used to, I worked at the Cheyenne Mountain <laughs> Zoo for a summer, and I worked with the hippos, and they ate quite a bit of like fruits and veggies, but when they had a particularly alfalfa-y poop, sometimes it smelled really nice. It smelled like I grew up in a really agrarian community and it's it smelled like haying season. And it was so it was so funny yes. and so pleasant. Um yeah. <laughs> 
That yeah, usually, you need to remind I mean, most... it the ungulate poops, yeah, because they're just very grassy. And elephants the yeah. same way. It's just yeah. very grassy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not that bad, which is nice because, I mean, I get, when I worked that job, I think we were filling, you know, like the big industrial trash bins? Yeah. Um, we were filling like two or three of those a day for just two hippos with just like <laughs> leaning their enclosure. Wow. It was wild. And they poop in the water, so you have to like drain the drain the pond and then yeah. like shovel up all this like wet. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> Zookeepers, I don't know how you do it. I did it for oh, a summer and was like, no, I don't think this is for me. I'm gonna work with poop in an entirely different way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my yeah. god. Okay, you know so where do you want to be found on the internet? Um, where where can people track you down if they want to hear more from you? Um, learn more about what you do. Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at conservationist underscore Misa, and it's M-I-S-A. It's like Lisa with an M. That's my professional <laughs> one. I don't post nearly enough, but I, I tend to uh, highlight a lot of stuff Conservation X Labs is doing, and they are also on mm-hmm. Instagram at Conservation X Labs. Um, yeah, that's where you can find me. You can, uh, email me as well. Misa at conservationxlabs.org. I'm always happy to field questions and hear what you guys say or share stories. Yeah. Come find me. My Instagram is pterodactylsaurus. Uh, you know, Gosh, but instead of handle. the pterodactyl, but it's my name, T-A-R-A, then dactylsaurus. Okay. You know, if people want to find you, we'll 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 share all that info in the show notes. Um, and again, thank you both so much for coming on. This was the most fun I've ever had talking about poop, and I've had some fun poop conversations before. <laughs> so I love talking thank you about both. poop. Thank oh you my for gosh. having yeah. us. No, thank you. This yeah. is a pleasure for us, one hundred percent. Yeah. Yes. And yes. to our listeners who are still here, thank you for still being here. Um, I hope you're feeling inspired to get out and be a canine conservationist and whatever way suits your passions and skill set. Um, today, maybe maybe you should go organize a poop pickup day at f- your favorite park in honor of all of this. Um, you can find the show notes, um, find Tara and Misa's links and all of that good stuff, as well as donate to Canine Conservationists and join our Patreon learning club, book club, video club, all that good stuff over at canineconservationists.org. Until next time. Are you on Patreon yet? If you love this podcast and want to support it in the long term, Patreon is the way to go. I spend hours per episode researching guests, writing out questions, recording interviews, posting on Patreon to engage with our patrons about all of those, cleaning up the audio, and putting together all of the promotional materials. Even with the help of volunteers, this is an enormous task that takes up a ton of my time, and right now I'm not paid for it. For just $3 a month, you can support this show while also gaining access to our exclusive detection dog training video help calls, which happen once a month, our learning club calls, which are currently quarterly, but I'm hoping to move to monthly, and a lot more. You can join the fun over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or using the link in our show notes. You also may want to share this with anyone else you know who is interested in getting involved in the field of conservation detection dogs, because this is hands down the lowest cost way to get as much mentoring and assistance and joining a community of other professional and aspiring conservation detection dog handlers. And um, you're going to really enjoy it. See you there.